If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis 25. Continuing our reading through the book of Genesis. Read Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Yokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Numimim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanoch, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lachai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbel, Mibsam, Ishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Getor, Nefish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. There's a number of divisions of the larger structure in the book of Matthew, but one particularly helpful division is that there are sections of narrative and then major discourse. Um, and so we come now to the first major discourse in Matthew. And we've had an extended narrative about the birth of the true son of David, uh, this king whom God had promised from long ago, uh, this one who would be a blessing not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth as the son of Abraham. And seeing God's provision for this king, 
in the protection that he extended to him, and also in the preparation that God made for the coming of this king in John the Baptist, and so on. And we come now to the first teaching of Christ, the extended teaching of Christ, which is known commonly as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which will uh, take us from chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's the longest of Christ's teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it is perhaps the most well-known and beloved, but also one of the most challenging uh, teachings uh, in the Gospels as a whole. And so with that, I'll invite you to lend your attention, and we'll read chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be pleased to grant to us understanding, that you would grant to us understanding of who you are on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would build us up in faith and hope as we look to him. You build us up in love as we learn more and more of the, the boundlessness of your love extended unto us uh, in our King and our Savior. Attend our hearts even now. Attend uh, my words. May the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you. And do what only you can do, O Lord, uh, by building up in these gifts. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Can you think of a time when you were truly happy? <laughs> if you've ever tried to explore the state of the soul uh, when you find yourself happy. <laughs> Maybe it's on a vacation, engaging in a particularly well-loved hobby. Maybe it's over meat and wine. <laughs> There's a number of ways you could describe the state of the soul 
in those moments of happiness. Kids, do you remember a time when you were really, really happy? Do you remember what was happening? I can remember times of particular happiness as a child, my dad taking me sledding with my brother. Uh, That Christmas morning when I got the sled, which I would subsequently sled upon. (laughs) Uh, Baseball games where victory was won and celebrations were had. There's a certain fullness that one feels. Or to shift the image, there's a certain satisfaction that one feels. You feel like you're going to burst. Images of being filled up. My cup overflows, David says. One of the hardest part about those memories, as beautiful as they are, is they're gone. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to extend a moment of happiness beyond its natural course. Just one more glass of wine. <laughs> Maybe one more steak. <laughs> it very quickly turns to something other than satisfaction. Mm. You can't prolong it. You receive it. You delight in it. And then it's gone. (laughs) It's so strange. Mm. It's hard. Mm. The difficulty of that experience, in some sense, is relieved by Christ saying that I have come to bring satisfaction. Mm -hmm. That I've come to bring true happiness, as Calvin calls it. Because that's what blessedness is. It's a fullness. Mm -hmm. It's a satisfaction. But it's one that Christ brings Not in a fleeting sense, Mm. not in a temporary sense, but in a permanent sense. Mm. We're going to remark here in a moment, this is Christ's first teaching in Matthew's gospel. And he's very interested in pronouncing blessing. (laughs) And that's good news. Mm. I think there's lots of ways to read the Sermon on the Mount that forget that this is good news. He says a lot of hard things in the sermon, but once again, we can remark that this is the good news of the kingdom. (laughs) It is a teaching on the kingdom, but at the heart of the kingdom is the king. (laughs) And what the king has come to bring is blessing. So we're going to spend three weeks here on these Beatitudes. In the first week, we're going to ask kind of big picture questions and make big picture answers. The first answer or first observation that we're going to make is that Jesus brings true blessing. (laughs) The second point we're going to make is that we receive of true blessing by coming to Jesus. We're going to make the third observation that the reign of Christ, this reign of blessing, is seen in Christian character and conduct. Mm. So first, Jesus brings true 
blessing. Mm. Anyone who's read Anna Karenina knows that opening words are important. <laughs> and you can know that in other ways, too. <laughs> but these are his opening words, in a sense. And they set the tone for everything that follows. And the one thing that rings forth in these opening words is blessed. Mm. Nine times, blessed, blessed, blessed. It stands to reason that as we sit at the feet of this king, blessing is important. <laughs> That's what he presses upon our hearts in all plainness and clarity. But what is this blessing? What is blessedness? What is the blessed that he pronounces? As I alluded to earlier, some translations have it happy. Happy are those. Happiness. Calvin actually prefers this. Calvin takes particular delight in saying Jesus Christ here teaches us about true happiness. It's a difficult word to translate. And I think a better way to approach it is not by a definition, but by an image. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 opens with the well-known, blessed is the man. It's very similar to Matthew 5. But he doesn't define it in Psalm 1. What does he do? He gives an image. He gives a picture of the blessed man. You know the picture. Picture of a tree by a stream. He is like a tree planted by a stream of water which yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. What a beautiful picture. Children, have you ever walked along a river and seen the trees? Did you know the trees have roots that are just drinking that water from the river? Have you ever been really thirsty? Did you know trees get thirsty too? And the way that they drink is sending their roots into the ground and bringing moisture nutrients in to sustain the life of that tree this is a lovely picture of what blessing is what blessedness is there's this great scene in war and peace prince andre is despairing of life and he passes by an old and gnarled oak ravaged by winter it looks dead dreadful Prince Andre sympathizes deeply with the tree. But then he pulls up to the Rostov home and he crosses paths with Natasha, an emblem of life, loveliness, vitality. She's full of vibrancy and he sees in her something that he lacks entirely and he's so struck by the fact that her vibrancy is utterly untouched by his despair. Mm -hmm. In fact, she doesn't even seem to be aware of his existence. <laughs> and he's moved by that. He leaves sometime later, and spring has come, and he passes by the same oak. And somehow, life has taken hold of that oak. That great tree, it hardly seems possible that it was the same one that he passed on the way out. A dead tree has transformed into a living tree by the mystery of spring. And a despairing man has transformed into a lively soul by the mystery of woman. 
Psalm 1 compares the blessedness to that mysterious life that comes to a tree from living waters. Mark the image, there's nearness to the stream. It's planted alongside the stream. But there's also participation in the stream as fruit and green leaf come to the tree, belong to the tree, but are supplied by the stream. It's a picture that's very similar to the one that the Lord Jesus Christ uses in John 15, where he says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Branches don't bear life in and of themselves. You cut off a branch and you leave it on the ground. You see what the branch is left to itself. Kindling. <laughs> but a branch in a vine bears fruit. Jesus says, I am the vine. The vine is vitally necessary. The vine is the life. The stream is vitally necessary. The stream is the life. So what is blessedness? It is nearness to and participation in true life. Jesus has come to bring us near to life and to make us participants in life. A life that he has in himself or which he himself is. I am the way, the truth, the life. This is blessedness. Thus, it's a blessedness that abides. <laughs> it's not tied to a meal that's here a moment gone and next. It's not tied to a victory that's here a moment swallowed in defeat the next. It's not tied to a success which is enjoyed for a moment and then gone the next. It's not tied to circumstances. It's tied to him. The same yesterday, today, and always. And that's good news. But we do have to ask in the light of these pronouncements, when is true blessedness? When? Now, in one sense, we say now. That's what he says. Blessed are. Blessed are. You're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. There's a very present ring to much of what he says here. Nine times the present. Blessed are. Two of the explanations are even present tense. Theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. It's not future. He's come to bring blessing now. Paul says this in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed you. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's what Jesus himself says in Matthew 16. Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Right now. <laughs> because you see me. You know me. Now. And that's the heart of blessing. So be encouraged, beloved. 
Much is wrong with your life. But you say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And therefore you are blessed. <laughs> you possess the heart of blessing. The world wants you to evaluate your happiness by your circumstances. The world wants you to evaluate your happiness by how much stuff you have. By how many opportunities are opened to you. By how popular you are. By how chic your clothing is. It's all a leaf in a wind. <laughs> Scripture asks one question. Do you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you know that? Do you know that? Not everybody sees that. Have you seen it? He's the king. He's the one whom God sent. Mm -hmm. Do you say yes and amen to that? Happy are you. Truly happy are you. Blessed are you. Truly blessed are you. Rejoice. No wonder this is the house of thanksgiving. Because whatever is going on, that remains true. Jesus is Christ. You have seen it. Blessed are you. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. Much is wrong. But that is right. And it's the heart of blessing. You're blessed now. If you've seen that Jesus is the Christ. But there is also a future sense, isn't there? <laughs> There's a sense in which the perfection and the completion of blessing is plainly future. You hear that. All the explanations, most of the explanations are future. You will be comforted. You will inherit. You will see God. And so in one important sense, our blessedness is not exactly obvious from the present. <laughs> It's awaiting something future for its perfection. And that's important. It's important because without this, a lot of what Jesus says won't make any sense. Because what he pronounces as evidence of blessing doesn't sound so blessed. <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. <laughs> blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's want. There's lack. There's need. <laughs> Blessed are those who were persecuted for righteousness sake. That's not ideal. From one angle, that is unpleasant through and through. It sounds incredibly difficult. So it's so important to understand both the present and the future coordinates to this. There is present blessing, but there's also present difficulty with anticipation of future perfect blessing. It's important to keep that in mind. You can be confident that as you come to Christ, he brings true blessing, but that does not mean everything is immediately fixed. That much remains broken. And that the day of wellness 
is tied to the day that Christ returns. And so we wait in hope. But just because there's present difficulty does not mean that he is not reigning in grace. And that's important to remember. Because we can also note that for our Lord, the future is not only bright, it's certain. <laughs> only an all-powerful king can guarantee the things that he guarantees here. He does not say there's a possibility you might be comforted if everything goes well. Mm. He says you will be comforted. <laughs> you will inherit. You will receive mercy. It's not unsure. <laughs> it is certain and it is guaranteed by the only one who can make such guarantees. The one who is seated on the holy hill. He sits down here. Hear Psalm 2. I have seated my king upon my holy hill. The Lord sits in heaven's and he looks down and he laughs at all who oppose him as if they could stop his will from being realized. It's only from the mouth of such a one that we can hear these things and say, yes and amen. All I see are tears. All I see is ache. All I see is hunger. But the one who sits in heaven says, you will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. The future is not just bright. It is sure for all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The anchor of our future blessedness sustains us in the face of present difficulty and disappointment. Another way of saying this, and no small part of our blessedness is that we have true and living hope which animates us and sustains us now as he also orients us to expect difficulty as we are his followers. So then we insist that Jesus Christ came to bring true blessing and his followers already have begun to enjoy it now, but we're also craving the day of his return when that blessedness is brought to perfection and completion. But we ask next, how do you come to possess true blessedness? How do you come to have, to own, to participate in true blessedness? And the most basic and important answer is you come to Jesus in faith. You come to Jesus in faith. Verse 1 reads, he sat down and his disciples came to him. <laughs> you come to Christ and he blesses. That's it. That's simple. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Come to Christ and he gives life. Come to Christ and he gives blessing. Again and again and again, that's the call of Scripture. Come to Christ. Come to the fountains of living water. Come to the bread who's come down from heaven. Come, buy, without having money, for he gives freely. So again, we can mark here the wonder that in Jesus Christ, God is approachable. 
There's another scene that's really important for understanding the beauty of this scene, and it's Moses on Mount Sinai. There God met with his people. God gave Moses instruction to deliver to his people. God met with the people, but he met with Moses face to face, something the people didn't enjoy. Moses alone was on the mountain, and then he had to go down to the people. Mark the difference here. Jesus opens his mouth to teach them. Moses could only give what he first received. Jesus opens his mouth and from his fullness, the fullness of grace and truth, he gives. Here the people don't shrink back in fear. Rather, they come and they sit at the feet of Jesus on God's holy hill. The disciples come to him. There's this beautiful and blessed nearness that we enjoy with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can also point out that all the disciples were there. This wasn't a gift that was unique to one of them. They all sat at his feet. They all had this fellowship. They all participated in this life. We zoom out in the wonder of the kingdom that we all enjoy this communion with God, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to the Father, to use Paul's words from Ephesians 2. Christ welcomes sinners. He welcomes disciples to sit on God's holy mountain. The church father Chromatius observes, the severity of the law was first given by Moses on the mountain, but the people were forbidden to draw close. Now with Jesus, all are invited to draw near to him to hear the gift of the gospel. Consider again the excellencies of our king. <laughs> Think about how frustrated we get when others interrupt us. That's not just me. I know it's not just me. <laughs> now, I grant we have responsibilities and to interrupt constantly is not fair to those responsibilities. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that instinctive impatience that's so quick to irritation or anger when someone has the audacity to intrude upon our sacrosanct time and energy and attention. Or that sinful tendency that we have to be greedy with our time and make no time for others, even those to whom we owe our time and our attention. Now consider Christ in this exceedingly generous welcome of others. Again and again, we're going to see this through the gospel. He welcomes, he welcomes, he welcomes intrusions upon him. Even the disciples are like, get rid of this guy. This guy is a nuisance. <laughs> Send him away. Or these kids, they got no right next to the king. And what does he say? Bring him here. Bring him here. Bring him here. <laughs> and not just when all is going well for Christ. There are these moments when he's trying to withdraw. He's clearly exhausted. 
He's trying to withdraw, and yet he sees the people crowding upon him, and what does he do? He has compassion upon them. Even the disciples are like, send him away so they can find what they need. And he says, you feed him. We're going to feed him. This is so encouraging to us. It's encouraging because he welcomes us. He is an embodiment of James 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Jesus gives of himself generously to all without reproach. Mark how every one of those modifiers corrects a bad instinct that we have. Generously. Not barely. Not stingily. Not begrudgingly generously to all not to some but to any and all who come to him without reproach i'm just glad you're here i'm delighted that you came (laughs) here here this is strong reassurance for us because he delights to welcome us knowing us better than we know ourselves This is true when we first come to Christ in faith, and it continues to be true as we come to him every Lord's Day in public worship and day by day in prayer. Is this not strong encouragement to come to him? Does this not correct our sinful tendency to run from him? What do we think? We think we sin, we gotta hide. That's the old man. Jesus says, no, come, I've come to forget. This is why I came. We think I have nothing. I got to go figure it out. And then I'll come. No, you're only going to make your nothing worse if you take that route. Come to me. And he welcomes. Because he gives generously to all without reproach. Bring those thoughts captive, beloved. Any time you think God begrudgingly gives or somehow I'm excluded or somehow he's going to be reproachful to me or rub my face in my shame, he gives to all generously without reproach. And Jesus is the embodiment of that. Time and time again, that's exactly what he did in his earthly ministry. And it's exactly what he does now. As he makes intercession for us, for he ever lives to make intercession. Let your weary hearts rejoice. Let your hungry hearts rejoice. Let your sinful hearts rejoice, for he is mighty to save. receive a blessing by coming to Christ. And that's important to say up front because that also shapes how we hear the Sermon on the Mount. We receive blessing by coming to Christ in faith. The Lord's going to give us extensive instruction on what it looks like to follow him. What it looks like to be a member of his kingdom of life. But it would be a mistake to read the Sermon on the Mount as what we must do in order to be welcomed by Christ. 
Rather, it is better to say we come to Christ in faith and he welcomes us. And then what we see in this sermon becomes more and more true of us as we partake of his life, which he gives so freely. Jesus addresses disciples. That's how it starts. He sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. He's already called them. He's already gathered them to himself. He didn't say, leave your nets, come to me, only if these things are true of you. He said, come to me, and the disciples are going to out, find out that more and more this is going to be true of them. It's going to be hard for them. <laughs> They're going to get this wrong frequently. But the one thing that remains constant is they walk with Christ by faith. Mm. It's important to note. And it extends from that image that we made earlier, right? The tree does not produce fruit and then come to the stream. <laughs> if you want to press the image, a tree can't even plant itself by the stream. It must be planted. There's that mysterious divine passive. It's like a tree planted. Well, who planted it? <laughs> Not the tree. God in his grace plants these disciples at the feet. If you've come to Christ, rejoice. It means he's brought you to himself. You are his workmanship. But now get ready because he's about to do the rest of this stuff to you. <laughs> And he also teaches us to desire that he do this to us because this is his reign of life in this sad world. He's going to challenge us on our character. He's going to challenge us on our conduct. And the only way we're going to be able to hear these challenges is by fixing our gaze upon the king who gives life and fashions the life through both encouragement and rebuke, building up and pruning. <laughs> Fix your eyes on the king. Fix your eyes on Christ. Receive of his blessing and hear of his challenges. For his word brings life. So let me insist here just quickly that to receive blessing, you must come to Christ in faith. If you do not know Christ, you may be a great many things. Healthy, wealthy, popular, successful. But the one thing you are not is blessed. Look past whatever you mark as your good, your health, your wealth, your success. It could all be gone in a moment. And then fix your eyes on the one who gives true blessing and come to him in faith. For there's only one who forgives sins. There's only one who gives eternal life. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the true stream, cleansing, supplying life. Come to him and live. But we consider last that his kingdom of grace is glimpsed in Christian character and conduct. This is a sermon about the kingdom of God from the true king. And it is overwhelmingly concerned with character and conduct. 
It's a good phrase. I borrow it from Charles Price. But John Calvin makes this same point rather bluntly. He says, in this sermon, our Lord instructs us plainly in what a devout and holy life looks like. Thank you, John. <laughs> and that's right. There's much about Christian character and conduct which comes into the immediate center of what Christ is instructing on. And he's instructing about his reign of grace in this world. And we would be remiss if we didn't hear that. That instructed on Christian character and conduct. For if on the one hand we say that this is a portrait of what Christ does in us, we ought also to see in this instruction in what we are to seek and to desire from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to seek from him a sense of our poverty. We're to seek from him a sense of our emptiness, a sense of our bankruptcy. Seek from him a sense of grief at how near sin is at hand. We're to seek from him the forgiveness and the life that comes only from and in him. We're to seek from him hearts that are quicker unto mercy than cruelty, quicker unto faithfulness than treachery. We're to seek from him persevering grace in the face of whatever hard circumstances he determines are good and fitting for his glory. The dawning of those things is the kingdom of grace. Nearness and participation to life. We can feel tension in that sometimes, right? What he does in us and what we're supposed to seek from him. But there's no tension in scripture. Christ is going to say, take heart, little children. It's my father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then he's going to say, pray, thy kingdom come. <laughs> it's his good pleasure to give it. Great. <laughs> Done deal. Now pray for it to come. Oh, okay. <laughs> I misunderstood. But the one assures us that it doesn't hang ultimately upon our efforts. It's founded on something more sure. His good pleasure, his good will, his eternal love set freely upon sinners. And the other ushers us in to walk after Christ. To live as those who bear his name. This is an important point to make right now. Because a lot of people are confused on what the realization of Christ's kingdom in this world looks like. If you look at the Beatitudes, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Christian character and conduct is at the heart of the evidence for Christ's reign in grace. The evidence that Christ is ruling in this world is that his disciples are starting to see themselves rightly bankrupt, empty sinners. <laughs> They're starting to see Christ rightly. You are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the one who gives righteousness. You are the one who satisfies. And they're starting to see others rightly as those to whom we owe a debt of love, as true children of the Father. In other words, Christ's kingdom chiefly reflects itself in true Christian character and conduct and not circumstances. 
The evidence that he is reigning is not to be found in an ideal life in this world, however you might configure it. That is not promised to you. It is promised to no one. In fact, he closes the Beatitudes assuring you that you're going to suffer. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he closes the Sermon on the Mount with a picture of a house being beaten upon by wind and waves and an unruly sea. That sounds less than idyllic. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that Christ isn't reigning in grace. For the house stands. For it sits upon a foundation that is sure. The Lord Jesus Christ the evidence that Jesus is reigning in grace is on display in the lives of faith, hope, and love that are being lived out among the disciples in a world that is fading away. I trust you can see the point I'm not so subtly making. <laughs> he does not promise us a nation or a world friendly to Christian principles, nor does the gospel and Christ's kingdom depend upon it. He does promise to make people truly Christian. And if he's promised it, then we can seek it with confidence. And we can fix our gaze upon the one who will do it. So let us learn to seek the blessings that he has promised. True fruit coming forth from trees that should be dead, but are mysteriously near unto and participating in the true stream let us seek a growing sense of our sin so that we may grow in a sense of his all-sufficient goodness, grace, and mercy. May he make us true trees planted by the true stream, yielding the true fruit of Christian character and conduct in whatever circumstances he sees fit to put us in. That is blessing. So let it be. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Grant to us an understanding of Christ as the resurrection and the life. Christ as the true vine. Christ as the king who gathers and sustains and blesses. That we might to declare Indeed, blessed are you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now tasted, but one day in full, Lord. Sustain us until that day, for we ask in Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.